0: Sometimes we don't act like we believe that, those of us who are Christ followers. Um, But I want to point you to a passage of Scripture that was written 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. Prophet Isaiah says this in uh, chapter 9, verse 6, For a child is to be born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Isaiah predicts that 700 years in the future, a child so unusual, a child that has never been seen before, will be born, and he'll be so incredible that people will call him by these names. And today I want to look at this whole idea of the Prince of Peace. Um, When you think of Christmas, is peace the word that comes to mind? How many of you have participated in the annual uh, session of peace called Black Friday? That's an event filled with peace and goodwill towards men, right? I've seen you. I've seen you knock me over, run me out of the way. Yeah, talk to me about peace. Um... Yesterday, Janie and I, I had taken her to Dallas for her birthday and we stayed in a hotel and went out to eat and we did all this Janie stuff. We went and let her, she shopped and she was telling people, he let me shop as long as I wanted to And here and here. And I'm like, baby, it's, this was about you. And, and at Target, you know, I go and I, I actually sit down. I got me a Dallas Morning News because I can read that thing forever. And she's like she's calling me. I'm almost done. So I'm like, baby, I'm just on section three. You take your time. You know, just have a great time. Well, the uh, teenage girls, the the Impact Student Ministry girls, were at the Galleria yesterday, so we were only about five miles from there. We said, let's go surprise them. So we drive over to the Galleria, and, and peace is what comes to mind when I entered the parking lot because... You couldn't even get from the access road. It was like two cycles to get through the light. There were so many cars. And then I knew we were in trouble because when we came into the parking lot, there's all these dudes dressed up like Santa, skinny dudes dressed up like Santa, directing traffic everywhere. And before we got to the first parking garage, there's six Santa dudes directing traffic. And people are not happy. We come around the corner. You know, he has to hold traffic so the pedestrians can walk by. And there's two two lanes of traffic going each direction. And when they hold it up, no, people are not nice. And so we decided, let's just get in the first parking garage we come to. And there's every entrance, every exit, there's Santa looking dudes directing traffic and just having this good old time. So we finally get up to this entrance and I turn my blinker on. He goes, you in. I'm like, yes, sir. And so I pull in. As soon as I pull in, there's about 10 cars in front of me. We are bumper to bumper. Santa doesn't give you any space. Santa wants you next to your friend. So we're right next to people in front of us. And then I see right up about the 11th car, I see someone's taillights come on that they want to back out. And I thought, this is not good because somebody had turned in from here and somebody had turned left. So both lanes of traffic and, and it curves around this way and it curves around this way. And I'm looking in my mirror and I'm watching cars just stack up as far as the eye can see. And then they, they don't want to back up because, you know, they're, they're very tentative. So they come a little bit and Santa's going, come on. Bef- I'm not kidding. Before long, there's five Santas come running down. there. What's going on? And they run up there, five Santas directing this one car to come out. And then the honking begins. I mean, people are just laying on that peace. Peace. And, and I'm thinking, man, this is, and Santas are turning around going, we can't do anything, you know. And, and I'm just like, man, I'm glad I'm not out there. And I'm glad I'm not one of them. It took us at least five minutes for this car to back out. As soon as they get out, one directly across from them wants to back out. And, I'm, and I told Jenny, I said, I don't want to park there even if it comes open for us because it will take forever to get out. It was just crazy. You get inside the store, man, people are not peace-filled, They are on a mission and peace is not what comes to mind. Have you ever been to Walmart on Christmas Eve? Is peace the word that describes the scene on Christmas Eve for all the idiots who waited till the last minute? No, it is not. (laughs) Jesus was born into a time of enormous uncertainty. There was no peace in the land. Think about Mary and Joseph, they had to travel 70 to 80 miles from Nazareth to the town of Bethlehem for a census. Now, we don't know how they traveled, but Mary was very, very pregnant. And so it seems logical that she rode on or in something. We don't know exactly, maybe a wagon or a cart, that doesn't matter. But I can't imagine a very pregnant woman riding on or in anything for 70 miles would be peace filled, would you? So, Isaiah says, this child is going to be called the Prince of Peace. Did he miss it? Because there wasn't a whole lot of peace back then, and there's not a lot of peace now, so did Isaiah miss it? Well, the name Isaiah used comes from two Hebrew words, Sar Shalom. And if you were here last Christmas Eve, we talked about this. Sar means the one in charge. Captain, Lord, Chief, General. I think we got all of those. There's the slide. The Romans later spelled it C-Z-A-R, Tsar, and they used it to denote the head man in charge. Later, it was changed to Caesar, as in Julius Caesar, the head man in charge. All right, that's the first word he uses. Second term Isaiah used was shalom. And you may have heard the Hebrews say this word, shalom, means rest, tranquility, wholeness, completeness. So if you combine the two terms, you come up with Jesus is the Tsar shalom, the captain of rest. He's the Lord of tranquility. He's the chief of contentment. And then here's where it gets interesting. Because the idea is, as long as you are under the umbrella of the Sar Shalom, under his protection, then he who is in charge of peace will grant you peace. You step out from underneath the umbrella of the one who's in charge of peace, you get no peace. So let's think about that. Does this mean that if you want peace, you can live any way you want to? Can you move out from under the umbrella and still be protected from a big rainstorm? That's a yes or no. Okay, just making sure. Common sense, right? So can you, can you get your girlfriend pregnant and still have peace? No. Can you live together before marriage and still have peace? Can you abuse your body with drugs, alcohol, food, etc. and still have peace? Can you live like hell and then show up once in a while to church on a Sunday morning and have peace? Can you do marriage in your own power and have peace? Can you get into debt up to your eyeballs and still have peace? And at this time of year, you're reminded of debt, right? And that there is no peace. Anytime you do any aspect of life in your own power, the Sar Shalom says you are on your own. You are in charge of your own peace. Only when you're under his authority will he then grant you peace. So we're going to look at this whole idea, this deeper idea of peace today. I don't know if you've ever been on a plane that suffered a whole lot of turbulence. I have been. Years ago, our choir went out to uh, Los Angeles. I was at Baylor, and we took this choir. There were 60 of us on a 120-passenger plane. And uh, when we were coming back, there was a windstorm, and we had to land um, in El Paso, and it was windy. It was so windy that as the plane was making its approach, as they would turn the wing, every once in a while, it would throw us exactly perpendicular to the ground. I was in the window seat, and I'm going, there's the ground. And, and it was really not a fun experience. And and the people who weren't puking were praying. The people who, and, and I'm not kidding, barf bags, they ran out of barf bags on this thing. It was so bad. But I noticed something, that that when, when you go through severe turbulence and you're starting to think about ground and gravity and we're going to fall and we're going to die, all of a sudden people become real spiritual. They start praying. Oh, dear God. And you start to see lips moving. <laughs> and they're saying, God, please help us. Please save us. You know, it, it, it's amazing that, that, you know, even in that time when, when you're about to die, you think your life is over, um, you become almost untemptable. You enter the zone of untemptability because Satan himself could stand right there. Your number one issue, throw it right there. And you're like, get away from me, Satan, because I got to talk to God. This is serious. You have a new level of spirituality because of the uncertainty that is facing you right then. You don't worry about unpaid bills. You don't worry about lawns or shrubs. You aren't mad at anyone. You forgive everyone. You start confessing your sins to God and to anyone who will listen. You have this new spirituality that overcomes you because of your circumstances. And when things are spinning out of control, we as humans have this natural tendency to turn towards God. And uh, if you think about it, God gets more done during times of uncertainty than he does during our times of peace. All of the times of peace in our lives and smoothness combined. God gets more done when there is uncertainty because people turn to him the most significant things you learn about yourself and about God have come during difficult times. We tend to drift away from God when life is good, but man, when stuff is messed up and our lives are out of control, we tend to turn towards God. And we discover that the Bible is the most relevant book on the planet. If you read the stories in this book, you'll see that difficulty and uncertainty surrounded every story, every person in here. And you read it, you find out that God is a master at taking care of his family during times of difficulty. This, we finished with this verse last week, and we're just going to kind of start with it here. Romans eight twenty eight says, We know that God is always at work. Now, you may have heard a different translation. The translation says, uh, We know that God works... Uh, in all things for good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Well, I intentionally chose this. This is the contemporary English version. I chose it because it says God is always at work. Jesus has told us that. We've been learning this in our Experiencing God study. Jesus said, my Father is always at work. That means He's at work in your job situation, if you lose a job, God is still at work. If you're taking finals for college or something else, God is at work. If you have relationship issues, God is always at work. If someone in your family dies, God is always at work. If there's destruction that hits the planet, there was major destruction that came to Haiti, and we discovered that God was at work in the midst of that, and He's still in the in uh, in the business of changing lives today. And and what I said on that video, I meant when you are in a worship service with people who have nothing and you see them consumed with who God is, you get an idea that maybe God is bigger than our circumstances. And he's come and he's met a people who are desperately seeking him. So you'll learn that God is always at work. Last week, we said that life is uncertain. God is not. He's always at work. And what's he working for? The rest of the verse for the good of everyone who loves him. That's his family. People who are in the family of God, who are under the authority of the Sar Shalom. God works on their behalf. They're the ones God has chosen for his purpose. And so some of you are going, okay, I can't see God at working. I, I, you say he's working great. I can't see him. How, how does that bring peace in my life? Just knowing that. What do I do while I wait for him to show up? I'm praying God doesn't seem to be answering. What do I do next? <laughs> and uh, what we're going to look at Paul tells us in the, in the book of Philippians, he tells us about a pathway to peace. And I wish I'd written that on your, on your listening guide. Sometimes, you know, as I'm studying after the fact, I didn't put that on your guide. So if you want to put that before we start the numbers one, two and three, put path to peace, because there are three things on the pathway to peace that we're going to talk about. Now, I'm not going to read you these verses yet because I got to give you the backstory. I memorized these verses 35 years ago and I have quoted them over and over to people in really difficult situations. I have prayed them when I'm standing at, a, at a, the bedside of someone who's passing to the next life. I've, I've prayed them for people who, who are holding their child in their arms as they're about to die. I've watched people die in the hospital. I've watched difficult situations happen. I've walked through those situations with people. I've prayed these and quoted these verses over and over again. But I've got to give you the backstory so that you'll understand them. If you just read the verses, you're going to say, oh, well, the writer, Paul, just doesn't understand my situation. If he understood my situation, he wouldn't tell me these things. Well, let me tell you about Paul. Philippians was written by a a man named Paul who was a Jew who left Jerusalem and started churches all over what we now call Europe. This was a man who was born and raised and highly educated in the Jewish religion and he goes into a Greek society and he says, hey, here's a new belief system for you. Everything you've ever been taught and believed about God is wrong. He says, I'm Paul from Jerusalem and you need to believe in Jesus who was God's son. He lived a sinless life, died on a cross as a payment for your sins and rose again the third day never to die again. The real God loves you so much that he sent me all the way from Jerusalem to tell you about the real deal. And if you think about this, you're, you're, you're like, how did Christianity ever catch on? But somehow people believed his message that Jesus was the Messiah. <clears throat> and Paul started churches all over Europe. One of the first churches he started was in Philippi. So he starts that church and then he travels all over Europe and starts these churches. And eventually he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, everyone had warned him not to go back to Jerusalem, to J-Town, because the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? Well, you see, Paul was going around talking to people like us, and he was saying to people like us, by, by us I mean non-Jews, what was called the Gentiles in the Bible. So he's talking to people like us, and he goes, um, you can worship the Jewish God, you can be loved by the Jewish God, but you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to follow all these rules and regulations. You don't have to eat certain foods. You don't have to follow the law in the Old Testament. You just need to accept God's Son, and the Jewish God will adopt you into His family. And the Jewish leaders were ticked. So when Paul shows up in Jerusalem and goes to the temple, a mob of Jews attacks him, drags him outside the city because they're going to beat him to death because, after all, it's improper to beat someone to death inside the temple. So let's drag him outside the temple, and then it's okay to beat him to death. Well, when they're about to beat him, the Roman soldiers, they're in charge of this whole thing, and they show up and they arrest Paul to save him from the angry mob. And then the Jewish folks, they come up with all these charges and they're going to take him to trial. Somewhere in this whole process, Paul goes, excuse me, not only am I a Jew, but I am a Roman citizen. Whoo! This is a big deal because you can't beat or hold a Roman citizen without knowing the charges. And so they're like, oh, they get scared. and, And Paul says, and by the way, I want to go to Caesar, the head man in charge. And the law said, if you were a Roman citizen and you said, I appeal to Caesar, they had to stop all the proceedings and take you to Caesar, the head man in charge, so that you could be tried before Caesar. So they said, got to send you to Rome. They put him on a ship. He takes off for Rome. In the midst of this travel, they get into the storm of the century and they're lost at sea for two weeks. So imagine Paul is is in this ship. He is chained, probably hands and feet chained together. And he's sitting in the storm of the century going, wow. And they're lost. Eventually the ship is, is beaten and broken on the rocks and they get to shore and they stay on this deserted island for three months. While he's there, he's still in chains. He still has guards all around him because he's an important prisoner who's going to Rome. They finally get to Rome. When he gets to Rome, they don't let him loose. They put him in house arrest. By house arrest, I don't mean the little collar that goes around your ankle and the GPS type thing. You are still bound in chains and you have Roman soldiers around you 24-7. And evidently his, his trial was not that big a deal because his case didn't come up for two years. So he's still in chains. He's still a prisoner for two years. And while he's in prison, house arrest for two years, he writes letters to all the churches that he started in in Europe. And Philippians is one of those letters. The verses that I'm about to read you are valid because of what the author, the writer went through before he ever wrote these verses down. And no matter what you're facing right now, you do not want to be the person who stands up after Paul to tell how bad things are in your life. You ever done that? You, you know, like, oh, man, this was so bad. And you start telling your story and then someone else st- stands up and their story is so much worse than yours. And you're going, oh, I wish I hadn't said anything. And then somebody else comes along. and uh, So here's what would happen. You would stand up and you go, man, life is difficult and here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. And then Paul would stand up and he goes, I was stoned. And some of y'all are going, so was I. And Paul goes, with rocks. And you go, ooh, that doesn't sound fun. And left for dead. And then Paul says, I've been beaten with a whip five times. They give you 39 lashes. Five times I've received 39 lashes. Another time they got a big stick and beat me 39 times with a big stick. I've been shipwrecked three times. One of the times I spent a whole night and a day in the ocean floating around. He says, I've been arrested. I've been beaten, uh, bitten by a poisonous snake. That's kind of a funny story. I've been chased, harassed everywhere I've gone. I've been in danger. And on top of that, when Paul's sitting in prison in Rome, he knows that his trial is probably going to end up in his death. There's all kinds of speculation about what happened to Paul and all of this stuff But tradition says that eventually one day some men very quietly came and got Paul, very quietly walked him outside the city of Rome, very quietly chopped off his head and came back in and that was the end of Paul's time on earth. So, Paul says, I have faced uncertain times and now I want to tell you how you can face them. And he says, there is a pathway to peace but you've got to do some things, and here's where it is in Philippians four four. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. And and, and when you hear this, if you didn't know the backstory, you'd just blow it off. But you know the backstory now. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And you're still going, I don't get it. Well, let me let me replace the in the Lord. I I underline in the Lord there for you. Let me replace that with some things and see if you understand what rejoicing in something means. Rejoice in my new job. You get that? Rejoice in my new baby or grandbaby. Y'all get that, don't you? My small group, they're always arguing over whose grandbaby is the cutest. And I don't have one, so I don't care what the, what the whole you know, argument is. But someday, mine will be the cutest. I'm just warning you up front. That will be a long time from now, by the way. That will be a long time from now. Or there will be a dead person in my family. Um, so he starts with rejoice in the Lord. And, and you're going, ah, oh, rejoice in my date with the new guy or the new girl. Y'all understand that, don't you? Rejoice in my Christmas bonus. Woo-hoo! And you're like, no, I didn't get one of those. All of that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Rejoice in something. We know what that means, rejoicing in something. It's to focus on something so much until the the emotion associated with that event washes over us and it oozes out for everyone to see. You know what rejoicing in something means. So the first thing Paul says is, during uncertain times, if you want to get on the path to peace, here it is, number one, focus on God. Rejoice in In the Lord. Focus on God. He's saying, he's not saying you're not going to face difficult circumstances because his life tells us you are. And the closer to the Jesus you are, it may be the more you're going to suffer difficult circumstances. But he says, you don't have to be worried about circumstances. You don't have to be worried about washed back and forth by the waves of the sea. I've done that. He says, focus on God. Stop wherever you are, however difficult it is. Stop right now and focus your attention on God. And focus so intently that the emotion of the goodness and grace of God washes over you and captures your heart and soul and it begins to ooze out of you for everyone else to see. Does that make sense? It doesn't. Okay. Americans aren't very good at rejoicing in the Lord because we've had too many other things to rejoice about. And when you focus on stuff, rejoicing in stuff, you lose your ability to focus on God and to rejoice in the Lord. Too many things in your life actually hinders your ability to rejoice in the Lord, and uh, and you become tempted to focus on your stuff. But suffering has a has a has a way of drastically reducing our wish list. Pain is God's megaphone to get your attention that something's not right, and the something is you're focusing on something other than God. You don't know how to rejoice in the Lord. So maybe this Christmas, we need to focus on what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Focus on that baby. Now, did you know that's part of why we gather every Sunday? It's part of why we sing, because songs, music touches our emotions. And some of you, I watch you, and especially the teenagers. Now, you're all going to be paranoid. But I've been to places with these teenagers. I was a youth minister for 19 years. When you go and you get away from all of the junk of life and you go to a camp or you go to a retreat or something like that, all of a sudden the teenagers begin to focus intently on God. And they begin to hear from the God of the universe for the first time in their lives because they're not focusing on their stuff. And they begin to worship. The emotion of worshiping God oozes out of their lives. And have you ever watched kids at youth camp worship? It's a taste of what I saw in Haiti on a regular Sunday morning. And sometimes I'll glance over here. I remember when my kids were little and the first time my kids began to raise their hand to God. And I remembered when they raised their hands to me, how I react. I don't turn them away. I pick them up. Whatever you need, I will give you. And I love it when I see people get caught up in the emotion of rejoicing in the Lord, and they don't worry about what you think about them. Because I, I grew up in the Baptist church, you raise your hand, somebody would slap that thing down. If not, yeah, if not physically, after church, you would be, you would never want to do that again. They'd pull you aside, and some deacon would tell you how it was. I get. So when I look at these teenagers and they get caught up in that emotion, I said, that's rejoicing in the Lord. And I want us to get it as a church. That's the first step. If you don't gather regularly with other believers, you will lose your ability to rejoice in the Lord. Which means you will lose your ability to have peace in the midst of uncertain times. Second thing is verse 5. Let your selfishness be evident to all. The Lord is near right? No, gentleness. Oh, I misread that. Sorry. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Okay, here's the point. Don't harden your heart. The idea is don't let the hardness of the situation harden your heart. The ugliest people on the planet are hard-hearted people because they are consumed with themselves. If your joy is overly associated with good times and good circumstances, then that demonstrates to everyone around you how selfish and shallow you are. As the circumstances become darker and harder, so does your heart, and it oozes out of you, and it's ugly. I don't care what you look like on the outside. If your heart is ugly, you are ugly. Don't allow outside circumstances to affect who you are on the inside. You have a choice. God allows Christians and non-Christians to go through difficult times so that hopefully non-Christians will see the difference in how we handle difficult situations and they'll be drawn to the God that we say we serve, that we say we rejoice in. then he says at the end, the Lord is near. He's saying, God is not moved. God is no different now. He's near. He's always at work. He's always near. Focus on Him. Verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving... Present your request to God. Separate the word anything into two words. Do not let anything cause you to worry. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. And don't you just hate it when you're in the midst of really bad circumstances and someone says, don't worry. You've never said, that's the best advice I've ever heard. Thank you. Say it to me again. Say it again. Don't worry. Be happy. I just want to be like Drew. Don't worry. Be happy. Wow, that's awesome. And you think when somebody says that, you want to smack them with an elbow in the name of Jesus, right in the face, right? Because you don't understand. If you understood, you'd be worried too, right? Maybe not in the name of Jesus, but that's what we'd like to say. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Paul says you got to do something else. He gives us the secret to handling difficult times without having difficult times handle us. And here it is, number three. Replace your anxiety with prayer. Every time life pulls you down, use prayer and petition with thanksgiving. (laughs) And some of you are going, Pray? What the heaven do you think I've been doing, Einstein? Pray. I've prayed more in the last three months than I've prayed my whole life combined. You idiot. Pray. I've been praying. And your prayers have been this. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, give me what I want. Oh, God, focus on me. Oh, God, bring all of your power to bear on me. And it's completely selfish. God, help him love me. Help her love me. Help me get that job. God, do this for me. But the key is this next verse. And it's it's a verse, it's a word I had never understood until this week. I was listening to Andy Stanley preach. And this kind of rocked my world when, when he talked about this. This next word, present, is not a prayer word. Prayer, petition, thanksgiving, all of those are prayer words. And then he throws in a word that's not a prayer word. Present literally means reveal. And it's used of solving a mystery. And it's like this light came on when I was listening to this sermon. Reveal what's in my soul. Many times what we do is we pray like like we would for comfort food. God, give me that man, not your man, because I want that man, because I'm not content with you, God. I need that man. We don't say it quite like that, but that's what we mean. God, give me that job, that car, that friend, that house, me, 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 me. But what we're praying for is comfort food. On the surface, here's my request. I want to be married. I want that house. I need to sell this house. I need a car. I need surface stuff. And what God wants you to do is reveal something that's behind the request. It has to honestly do with admitting who you are before God. What's driving the request from your soul? God wants you to reveal the mystery in your soul. And, and that's, that's the proper way to, uh, to respond to anxiety. But, but you go, well, I just don't know what's driving my request. Then my guess is, you've not suffered enough to get over yourself And be honest with yourself and to be honest with God. Times of uncertainty reveal our deepest insecurities, reveal our deepest fears. And very few of us pray at this level. We pray at the surface level for for comfort food, something that will relieve us from our fears and insecurities. Well, God, here's what I want. And by the way, it's already Friday. Are you ever going to answer my prayer, God? Because it's all about me. The universe revolves around me. What's the matter with you, God? We sound like Bruce Almighty. That's what I was thinking of. It's all about me. Paul tells us that praying like that does nothing for your fears. Pray instead, God, here's what I want. Here's why I want it. And here's what I'm afraid of. That's a much deeper level than most of us have ever been to in praying. And I'm willing to bet that you're never going to experience this level of praying until you are willing to be open and honest with a group of other Christians in a place like Celebrate Recovery or in a place like our small groups. Until you can connect heart to heart with other people, I don't think you're ever going to connect with your deepest fears in your soul and and reveal those to God. And this week, um, when I was studying and I prayed with Janie um, Thursday night, we we take turns praying, it was my turn to pray, and I started telling her about this verse And then I prayed and I opened up about my fears. And uh, one of my greatest fears is that New Life Community Church will fail because that means I failed. And one of my greatest fears is this budget. Because I'm just being gut level honest with you. Some of you are going to go out and you're going to open that up and you're just going to rip it apart. And, and I don't claim at all that we're perfect. None of us on the board would tell you that we're perfect. We've been praying for weeks trying to ask God. And I'm afraid that maybe we didn't hear God. And, and that's okay. I don't, if we didn't, we'll admit that freely. But I'm afraid that if, if this budget fails next year, because this is way more than we can do, that every one of you is going to look at me and say, you suck. That's, that's my fear. And so I opened up and I started praying and and I, you know, it's all dark in my room and I'm holding Janie's hand and I I kind of feel this head look at me like, who are you? I just started laying it out there before God. And I said, God, okay, here's what I'm afraid of. I want you to provide this, but not because it's about me, God, but because I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you. I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint everybody in the church. And I'm afraid we're going to fail. God, I am afraid of failing God. Now, the reason it's, it's real important. To be open and honest before God is because your fears parallel your deepest needs. And I discovered that I really have a need for my heavenly father to approve of me. And I want to do everything I can to succeed in his eyes. I've got family members who don't approve of what I do. It's not about them. And I I can't get caught up. I I, want to be approved of by you, but my ultimate goal is to be approved of by my Heavenly Father. And I really think if you'll be open and honest about who you are before God, you will admit that, some of you will admit, I need a Heavenly Father because my earthly father is not pleased with me. My earthly mother is not pleased. I need a Heavenly Father who will love me as I am but not leave me as I am because I'm hurting. It's a new level of praying that I bet most of us haven't experienced. I've been a minister now for 27 years and I just discovered this whole idea of presenting my request before God. I learned it three days ago. So you want to be underneath the sarshalom. you got to obey Him but you have to pray in a way that reveals to Him what's behind your request. And here's why it's so important. Verse 7, And the peace of God, not the peace of circumstances, not the peace of a bank account, not the peace of the love of your father or mother here on this planet, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. To guard means to stand watch over your heart and your mind. We're freaking out over circumstances because, number one, we're not being obedient to God. We're not under the authority of the Sar Shalom. But we've also never asked Him to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus because we're not honest about what's in them. We're not honest about what's driving our requests before Him. And God is not obligated to answer those requests until we get under His authority and we reveal our hearts and our souls to Him. And God says, now you're praying. And I I believe God's saying to us, I will let your circumstances get worse and worse and worse until you're finally willing to be honest and reveal what's driving the request. True peace, the type that humans cannot understand, comes from being in this position and revealing our hearts before God. So on your listening guides, if you want to get on the path to peace, You focus on God, you refuse to harden your heart in the midst of circumstances, you replace anxiety with prayer, but then you pray like this. I've given this to you, and I want to give you just a second to do this. Heavenly Father, I need you to fill in the blank. My small group will tell you, almost every week I've been praying for the Christmas season because that's a hard season. People are hurting, and I've been praying for the budget. And, and I need extra grace to reach out and help people during this time. And I, I, I told you about my fears with the whole budget thing. Heavenly Father, I need you too. If you don't, I'm afraid that blank. You fill in the blank. What are you afraid of? Some of you need to start with what you wrote on your cards last week. I asked you about uncertainty and everybody understood uncertainty. And some of you need to start there with what, what you wrote last week. Some of you weren't here. So whatever your most uncertain area is, Father, I need you to, you fill in that blank. And then I want to give you just 60 seconds. It's not enough time. But I want to start the process. I want you to think about what are you afraid of?